organics and local food movements and various forms of sustainable agriculture and natural food movements and vegan movements. I mean, so those things already exist. And so it seems like the tech sector came along wanting to disrupt the bad stuff, but really ignoring the stuff that already exists and kind of coming up with a third way. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, sometimes it seems that agriculture is headed in two directions at one time. Maybe often it feels like that. Back to the most basic elements of farming and food and food production and so forth, and also into the future with uh, kind of discoveries and implementations of new technologies. And and, and it's a sort of a schizophrenic kind of perspective sometimes I, I, when I look at this is that we're going as fast as we can in what seems to be opposite directions. Well, I'm, I'm really happy to have someone with me today, Julie Guthman. And she's with UC Santa Cruz. And, and Julie's look at agriculture, food, and farming systems from all these different perspectives. And, and lately, you're putting much more attention on the technical technology side. And, and Julie, we're going to talk about that, where agriculture is heading and dealing with this sort of complex paradox, if you will, um, going so hard, so fast, so interested in what seems to be opposite directions. And in, in particular, Julie, you've been looking at the technology applications of agriculture. What's led you to looking at this tech sector and what it has to do with food and agriculture? So what got you curious and, and how's your journey going? And that journey, I guess, is research. Julie, yeah. welcome. Thank, thank you for having me on your show, Roger. Um, so, yeah, so th that's a great opening question. Um, you know, I, I got into, interested in tech. It was really a tag on for my last research research on strawberries. I find that all of my pro research projects lead me into a new direction, and that was the case here as well. And so I had been doing research on strawberries for four or five years. And one of the things that was happening to this um, in the strawberry industry is that growers who are concerned about more regulation on the use of soil uh, on the use of soil fumigants as a way to control soilborne pathogens were looking at ways around um, uh, using fumigants and one of the the things they were looking at uh, is avoiding soil altogether by planting strawberries in um, substrate not not soil, so in coconut coir or peat moss and growing them, if not entirely hydroponically, but using like trays where you put the substrate in and, and just avoiding soil altogether. And so so I was in there was that. And then of course the strawberry industry is also facing all sorts of labor shortages. And so there was also a lot of interest in interest in robotics. And so these kind of new greenhouse style operations, although the strawberry industry is not fully into greenhouses yet, but these new greenhouse style operations that use 
other substrates and use robotics that are, of course, quite attached to the tech sector. So that was one kind of entry into this new research. But the other thing is I just happened to go to one of these events um, in San Francisco. It's sponsored by an organization called Food Bites. Um, that's food, B-Y-T-E-S, you get it. Um, and um, they um, are one of several organizations that have pitch events where new entrepreneurs come and pitch their um, technologies or their products, um, hoping to get the attention of venture capital. So I went to one of these events and watched about, um, I don't know, 12 regular pitches and maybe 20 mini pitches. And then there were people tabling. And I was just kind of really blown away at what I was seeing. I mean, some stuff was like, okay, here's a, we're really interested in, and, um, and I should say that everybody's like, the claim is that these, there's big grand challenges of food and agriculture. And this is why we need to throw more investment at it. And so, you know, food, climate change and food insecurity and, um, toxic chemicals and the like. And so, like, you know, I noticed things like, snack bars that had like high protein maybe made with moringa which is a high protein substance it's like that we're going to address food insecurity and i was like wait a minute how are you going to address food insecurity with a snack bar geared toward um wealthy world consumers who want a high protein snack so what does this have to do with that and then there was many there were several precision agriculture type technologies where you know allowing um, visualization of fields and, and so growers could be more productive and I was like wait a minute growers are already super productive that's not the cause of their problems you know in lack of productivity I could talk more about that if you like so I was like really kind of struck that these the solutions that were on offer that day were um, off the mark nothing new kind of shockingly un, um, uninformed and so that um, that and, go, and several conversations led me to apply for a um, grant. And I got a grant from the National Science Foundation to look at some of the claims of the Silicon Valley based food and agricultural sector. Um, what kind of problems they want to solve and, and with what, what kind of collaborations they're doing, how do they imagine their audiences, et cetera. And so that's the basis of my new research. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm going to continue here a little bit to say to your point in your introduction, what also really struck me is that the new tech, the tech sector is coming in and, you know, the tech more, tech more generally always talks about disruption, right? Like the tech sector wants to, you know, move fast and break things and disrupt. And they often target big incumbent corporations or big incumbent businesses to say this thing needs disruption, right? So we know what happened, for instance, with the taxi industry when Uber comes along and comes up with ways to just make ride, you know, rides more efficient than the taxi industry could ever do and pretty much destroys the taxi industry. So that's the kind of model is like of disruption. And so they're claiming disruption. So clearly in saying that the food food is fundamentally wrong they want to both um they want to disrupt the incumbents presumably the big corporations as well as the way that food and agriculture is um being is being pursued you know with toxic chemicals with 
contain livestock operations with all the things that we, all, you know, the litany of things that we know are wrong with big food, right? So that's the, the claim is disruption, but then they were kind of ignoring an already existing set of alternatives that is, you know, not fully to scale, but it has existed for a long time, organics and, and local food movements and um, various forms of sustainable agriculture and natural food movements and vegan movements. I mean, so those things already exist. And so it seems like the tech sector came along wanting to disrupt the bad stuff, but really ignoring the stuff that already exists and kind of coming up with a third way. Um, and so I, I find that really fascinating. You know, I have to jump in here because um, I'm like you. I've been around agriculture and looked at issues in several different industries and worked closely for and with farmers and ranchers all really all over the country, too. And then a few years ago, maybe several years ago, I was invited to help somebody uh, with some new products that we were going to Silicon Valley. And you probably got into this. So when you do this, you get invited eventually to do pitches and you, you know, you have to learn this whole new technology that identifies the different stages of getting funding with an idea. And sometimes it just starts with the concept. And it is crazy because I got invited to help pitch in uh on sand hill road um and up in palo alto and you you go up there and um the thing i remember most is there were some great lunches uh that but aside from that it was one of those things that's kind of like well you get in front of these potential investors and they say kind of like okay the clock's running do your pitch and you've got to kind of rattle it off but you can just come in there and the first levels are just like some broad idea you don't really have to have a decent prototype i mean you can like pick up a box and hold it up and say this is going to be a little satellite flying down through your strawberry rows or something like that so i'm saying well that's interesting <laughs> and and it just it was just crazy to me that there are people that feel like if something's out there and it kind of gets their attention they'll put some money in because they expect like what uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, like, like 90% we're going to fail, yeah, but, but, like but they, but they jump in and put a little money in because if they do it enough times, one of them's really going to hit it and then right. they can stay with it and they've got this preferred, but it's a whole different world, Julie. It's, it's, it's so different. different. I'd love to talk about pitches because that end up being one of our key objects of study. Because we went to so many of these events to watch these pitches. And so we have a paper that actually looks at the kind of architecture of the pitch. Did you I go to Sand Hill? Were you on Sand Hill Road? I'm just curious. No, we didn't go to Sand Hill. There were several in San Francisco. They've been oh, all okay. Over, okay. You know, um, but at the Food Bites event that I went to, that was a pitch event. I think they're they're pretty refined right now, but um, they're, they have such a kind of specific architecture. And we find that architecture this we when I say we I'm talking about my research team because um, we have a collaborative project we find that architecture fascinating right because the classically and and these are really the the time limit on these pitches is short when I think when we first started going they were ten or twelve minutes now yeah. I've seen them in four or five minutes with maybe another four minutes from of questions from the the judges panel which are often venture capitalists so within a very short time span they have to 
say a really big, huge problem, climate change, um, food insecurity, feeding the world, feeding the coming 10 billion by the year 2015. They always come up with, it start with one of those big, big, big challenges. And then they hone into, I have a solution. And the solution is often very, very narrow, right? Because yeah. what can a startup do, right? So there's like, I have a new lighting system that's going to allow greenhouse agriculture to work better. Or I have a new water filtration system so we can recycle the fish. Or I have a, you know, a new alternative protein um, so we can not have the cows emitting, you know, methane. Whatever, but the, the usually the product is much more narrow relative to the big challenge, um, and then and then they have they have to move again to say the market is huge for this. There's you know, and they the market projections are just hilarious. Like, well, you know, half all the world eats, and half the people are want to eat this, so yeah. therefore the market is, you know, <laughs> there's no limits to this market, which which of course is ridiculous because we know that this area this this uh domain is extraordinarily competitive and then after having kind of made their claims of disruption the last part of the pitch is like um gets the nitty-gritty but we have a sound business plan so we're gonna and this is what we're gonna do and we have after saying we're gonna disrupt the incumbents we have all these um incumbent corporations on our advisory team because they're the ones that are going to ensure that we know what we're doing and get to market and we have a profitability plan that's will have a profitable product in three years. So it's like kind of going back and forth between these huge claims and these mundane ideas. And, and we find this, and, and it really speaks to the limits of what these guys can do because you cannot really transform the food system with a technology that has to be profitable in three years to meet the yeah. demands of venture capital. You know, and I suppose that we could probably be talking about other industries, although we're talking food and agriculture, that that um, people look at something. And ultimately, in the case of agriculture, um, you would think that farmers are going to have to be purchasing something. They're going to have to purchase or use a technology or it's the processing companies that are or the cooperatives that are working with farmers. They're the ultimate um, that in many of these products, although in some cases it's it's consumer oriented so it's a, a a new food form or something like that that the that they're using as well and yet you know when you look at all the different places that you could invest money uh farmers aren't getting rich you know it and i look at the stories especially with what we're going through with water issues and so much land being fallowed there's a there are many 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 commodities and across the world where farmers are just barely hanging on yeah. so it's it's an interesting challenge because they're coming up with these great big ideas and targeting a, a market that has very very thin margins yeah and and you know that's precisely right and one of the um things i've heard at pitches that i always find hilarious actually is they say oh we're gonna we're gonna make farmers more profitable right i've heard that quite a few times i said I think to myself, how are you going to make farmers more profitable when the reason that farmers aren't profitable is because they've been encouraged to um, always embrace productivity enhancing technologies, which every other farmer does as well. And so the prices just fall. And when and they're always paying people like you 
for these technologies because if they don't, somebody else will. And so that's exactly why farmers are not profitable because of companies that are selling this sort of stuff. And how these companies are going to make their profits and make the farmers more profitable is, is in a, in a area that we know is really low margin is quite a puzzle, right? Yeah, it it really is. It it slows me down just even in having this conversation right now and rethinking it because I, I know the farmers. Now, one thing I do think that, that is promising is that as this technology gets out and it gets a scale where it's, uh, applicable to even the smallest farms. You know, I think one of the some of these technologies you can say, well, if you could do this and you could monitor the health of the plant or you know the application of of nutrients and stuff yeah. like that, and it becomes something that a farmer with five acres and um, and an iPhone can do as easily as as a farmer in Iowa farming two thousand acres of you know corn and soybeans or something. Uh, then now you really got something because you're coming up with this technology that can scale down in size and, and, and it can eliminate the barriers of entry that people that say, gee, I can only use this stuff. If I'm a, if I'm a large landholder, well, again, a frontier is that no, maybe not. Maybe you can actually be small and these technologies will help you. Yeah, there, I think there might be technologies that can help, like a nitrogen sensor in the soil, right? Sure. I mean, I, you know, I'm not dismissive of all the technologies. It's interesting to see how many of those are being developed relative to the other ones. But, you know, speaking to the scale issue, a lot of on the um, farming side, a lot of what they're offering are um, precision agriculture technologies and now augmented with big data analytics. So basically, mm-hmm. you know, the um the you know your John Deere tractor is going to be equipped with these sensors that are going to amass all this data from your or they're going to amass your farm level data and that's going to be amassed with like fifty thousand other farmers farm level data allegedly and then the big data analytics are going to give information that no individual farmer could do and tell you exactly where to spray something on your field. Yeah. Um, unclear that this is really going to help farmers but one thing it does is, is it obviously if you if you're going to use something like that you have a John Deere tractor you're probably growing growing a commodity crop um and which makes sense to buy that $250,000 piece of equipment mm-hmm. much of that doesn't apply to California agriculture much at all or at least in in specialty crops right so there's even this like the precision agriculture technologies, I don't even know if they're really being developed very much around the kind of crops that we grow here in California. Um, they're really meant more for the for the big commodity growers. And then there's a question of if they're, they're really going to help the big commodity growers anyway. So but but yeah, to have those, you know, to for the 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 drones and the radars and the soil and the sensors and the and the artificial intelligence or machine learning that gives information to have any use. It has to be, you know, the idea is it's a mass at this large mega levels. I'm, but does that really help farmer decision-making? I'm not sure, but back to your point, a lot of this is not being, a lot of these technologies are not geared towards small scale farmers. I mean, yes, I do see um, several, uh, people I've spoken to because it connects with my strawberry research are trying to develop um, robotic strawberry harvesters because the strawberries growers are concerned about 
the labor shortages. Um, that could maybe be a that would be of use to them if they can come up with a strawberry harvester that um, doesn't squish the strawberries and picks them ripe and doesn't pick the ones that are rotten. Um, um, I've heard them prototype. I don't think it's particularly good for farm laborers, but I mean, it's a, it's a technology that makes some sense, mm-hmm. but a lot of them are not even making sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think too, uh, the, the smaller farmers may not have access to coolers, which uh, the fact that the larger scale, like in the case of strawberries and some other fruits, you got to have a, you have a cooler that takes the temperature down pretty fast after it's coming out of the field. So you can ship it all the way to New York. Yeah. But if all you have to do is drive to Berkeley for the farmer's market, yeah. uh, you don't need that. Uh, yeah. But better eat it the next day or two. You can't yeah. wait two weeks. Yeah. So there's, there's just so many uh, so many elements to this that are really, it's really in, intriguing. Yeah. Uh, so it must be fun kind of plunging into it. And you've decided to focus in this area and you're going to start, you're researching it. You're potentially going to be writing about it and everything. Have you made some discoveries that you think, well, that's intriguing? Uh, just when you were having doubts and saying, gee, what did I start here? I'm going down a rabbit hole. But you think, okay, well, this is the right rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I mean, we already are publishing quite a few articles on this. I I think for this project, relative to my other projects, I'm surprised at the lack of surprises I've had. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, um, I'm, I, think when I went to that food bite events and thought, God, this is kind of ridiculous. I, I still kind of feel this is kind of ridiculous. And I keep on paying attention to what, you know, what's it, you know, am I just really, really biased here? And, you know, maybe I do need to pay more attention to um, technologies that I are, could be efficacious or that I think make sense. And the and I do come across them in hearing pitches or reviewing databases or all the different ways in which we're viewing the industry or doing interviews. Um, but a lot of the ones that I find to be the most, what I think would be the most useful technologies already exist. Because I'm thinking like, what, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is that, um, you know, food and farming is so deeply biological, right? I mean, they're based in biology. You have to have biological integrity throughout the entire chain of provision, right? That's what food and farming is. It's a biological process. And past um, technology introductions have been largely introduced to help farmers manage um, the the biophysical challenges of farming, right? So to manage the pests, to manage the soil and the nutrition, to manage food perishability, all these. A lot of technologies we might not think are, are um, they're, they're effective, but we might not think are good because they're, they are toxic or they're, you know, or, or all the many reasons we might not like them, but that's what technology has been. And so many agricultural technologies have been chemical or biological solutions to these biological challenges. So I'm thinking, what does Silicon Valley offer here with all these digital solutions? Because that's Silicon Valley's base. It's 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 um, computing and data science and um, and artificial intelligence and automation and 
And so what what can Silicon Valley actually bring to this sector? And I think that's kind of one of the issues I'm seeing is it can't bring anything because these are digital products meant going toward biological, a biological production system. And so that's why you get at best the kind of sensing and analysis that tells in that can at least provide farmers like, okay, this or or food producers, okay, here's a pathogen I can do something about. Here's a something a problem with my soil I can do something about. But they're not providing the actual treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just providing ways of understanding it. And then a lot of the technologies are bringing don't even give you that. They're just like ways of like digitizing business or you know doing an Airbnb type model for tractors and kitchens, which is who you know. Sure, maybe it's solving some problem, but it's not a big problem, right? So I think there's a real dearth of actual products coming out that address the real deep problems here. They're deep in biology. And those that I, but you don't want to replicate the kind of chemical solutions that have been such a problem. And so then I go look at, okay, so who's doing biological solutions that are friendly and kinder? And it goes back to the ones that are kind of already being employed in organic farming uh, systems like vermicosting or biochar. And so there, and if, and when, so when I see those or I see a microbiomatic soil amendment, I go, sure, that sounds good. Why not? I could go get behind that. But there, that's not anything that Silicon Valley is offering. The one thing about Silicon Valley is, again, is it's brought money here that a lot of projects get started. And part of that model is that let's let's get a lot of stuff going and something will stick. Uh, like we said earlier, 90% of them will fail. But if you're kind of that mindset, we got to try a lot of different things because something will work. You know, that's that's an interesting approach. But one thing that's missing that we've had in food and agriculture historically was government putting their thumb on the scale. Uh, and I'm wondering how much you see of that, because in other areas, say, for example, the National Institute of Health, looking at the application of technology for for health span and, and so forth, they, they're pretty aggressive and they have money uh, to, to work with. Did you come across any any spots where it looked like the, the research dollars that are from uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture in particular is is helping guide and direct and influence these these new develops these new applications of technology um it's not something we've looked at in any depth um i can say that the national science foundation as much as usda is very pro tech and so there is funding research funding to develop prototypes from NSF, I don't know about NIH, which is it's possible. I just don't attend to it. And certainly the USDA. And I don't think, um, why do I think that? I think that um, the U.S. government is really concerned with getting behind the technology curve, you know, because, I mean, it goes back to this history of in the 60s and 70s when the U.S. lost out on the electronics revolution, and a lot of the electronics were made in East Asia. I remember when everybody said, oh, this is when we were kids, what's <laughs> it made in Japan? And we're like, oh, that's so shocking. It should be made in the US or whatever. But that electronics revolution, it passed the US by. 
and we and the U.S. was outcompeted, and it created to these major structural problems in the U.S. economy in the 70s and early 80s. And so starting with biotechnology, the U.S. government said, we're not going to do that anymore. We want to really open the door for innovation. And so I think um, a lot of not I don't know the I don't know the amounts of support, but I do think that the the government wants to support and research in this so-called fourth industrial revolution, in, inclusive of some of these bio, biological technologies and and digital technologies, um, so to not be outcompeted elsewhere. Um, so I've seen pitches where they allude to their government support. I, I don't know how much of that is. I, I think it's probably minor relative to what they're getting from venture capital, from private funding, but it exists. Um, well, you, you know, the, the, the reason I, I started thinking about this as we, as we spoke, there was a time where the USDA's regional research laboratories, I don't know what there are, six, seven of them around the country, and they really got going, I believe, after the Depression. But they were trying to, uh, and part of what they were allowing them to do with these regional laboratories is focus so much on basic research rather than applied research and encourage the scientists to have a blank slate yeah. And and you look at it in hindsight, and you can put somebody in that are immediately kind of the effect of tenured and say, just go wild. Uh, here's uh, billions of dollars that are going out to these regional laboratories. And I think, Julie, that just up the road from you is one of those in Albany, because if you live in Berkeley now, uh, Albany had a laboratory that was developing things about you know, years and years ago, that if it had to make sense, this is the one thing I think it has in common with Silicon Valley investments, is that they didn't have to pay off in the near term. You yeah. know, that they that yeah. the government was saying, okay, scientists, just dream. Yeah. Well, I think that's something that's really changed, right? Um, that there is less of that money, certainly less of that basic research money. And this is something I, one of the chapters in the book I'm writing speaks to this very thing, um, that a lot of government funding came with strings attached um, or like, you know, or I mean, it, there's... Let me put this differently. I think that erode, the the separation between basic and applied research started eroding a long time ago, and it eroded in part when Novartis, um, which was later sold to to Bayer, I think, but Novartis um, at, at Berkeley went into, it went into a, a, a partnership with UC Berkeley in biotechnology. Um, and so um, that that was a, an example, but lots and lots of partnerships with big corporations making um, partnerships with universities who were also getting cash strapped from decline in, in public support. And so they were willing to go into these corporate partnerships. But also another big change was the Bayh-Dole Act, which allowed university researchers to get patents on their inventions. So. So what government funding comes is is really geared towards STEM and applied STEM and really geared toward um, technologies that might be 
marketable and commercial. So I think that whole basic research thing has has really dwindled. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's a shame. I'm. Uh, we might want to rekindle that. Uh, figure out that. Yeah. It'd, be, it'd be nice to turn them loose because even yeah. you get down to the university level with the land grant universities and so yeah. forth, the kind of research that you do, uh, you know, you can get so involved with the research, but you aren't having to like fund a laboratory. Um, and in some of those biosciences, uh, they have to be able to have a laboratory, and it's kind of like, well, you've got this space, you've got this lab. Now go get some money so that you can actually employ people. And, yeah, and I mean, that's and, a challenge. And they do get a lot more money. I mean, you know, the social sciences and humanities get pennies compared to what the STEM researchers get in terms of federal funding. So they get a lot of federal funding, but it is more and more geared toward applied technologies. But, you know, scientists do tend to do more applied work anyway. And this is one of these struggles that a social scientist and, and humanists really have is finding ways to, to sell our research, which we don't want to do. We don't, we, want, we don't even want to think about it that way. But yeah. to say what we're doing is valid, that it helps, you know, there's it has important public impacts for us to, you know, help us rethink what we're doing. But it's hard, you know, it's hard to make that case when you say, oh, we can fix something for private industry. And so there is, I mean, I could go on and on about university funding and research funding and, and the effects of really, I mean, liberal arts, funding for liberal arts is just dwindled. And, and so a lot of um, people not doing applied sciences are, you know, we're in the business of teaching. And if we were able to raise a few hundred thousands to do research we want to do, that's considered like amazing. Well, and then I think that this is a subject for another couple of podcasts at yeah. some point in time, because yeah. what we're talking about is what is the value to society, not necessarily uh, being so geared to, well, how's somebody going to profit from this? Yeah. And and it's it, it's a tug of war. I mean, there is a role for some things to be done just because the right thing to be done and that you have open frontiers that aren't necessarily going to immediately monetize. But exactly. in the long run, society will benefit from, and that's uh, that's a, a pretty um, pretty strong challenge. That I don't know that we're going to accomplish that in this particular podcast. Yeah, but it's including, yeah, but it's in, the in, benefits in, of having critical thinking um, citizens, you know, that are educated in, in a university where they're just taught to think about is is this a technology a good technology? Why do we think, think it's good? Who's Who's it going to serve? Who's it not going to serve? And these are really important questions about technology that are not being asked and answered in STEM fields. Yeah, no, that's right. And I think give me give me one more to jump out on here because yeah. you're and and that is uh, I look at technologies that have been introduced in the past that were uh, I think they misfired in the introduction of the technologies and still paying a price today. Yeah. And uh, GMOs, I think, are an example. Uh, when you look back, what, in the early 80s or something like that, and we started having the more um, genetic modification, although you could say genetic modification, we're always doing that. But you still had the GMOs. And at first blush, there was a lot of support behind all the good things we were going to be able to do. But because the industry prioritized things like Roundup Ready and applying glyphosate and so forth, it really got a black eye to the whole technology. When the technology has a lot of promise, what people were responding to was if it means that it just allows you to put poisons on crops that you couldn't put poison on before, 
Why is that a good thing? And yeah. I think there's still a price to be paid for that misjudgment of over 40 years ago uh, that it could have been handled differently, I think. I can't agree more. I think that they really misfired with the kind of technologies they brought online that were geared toward making it easier for farmers. I mean, farmers like Roundup Ready varieties, right? Mm -hmm. So they don't have to weed. Um, But with huge environmental impacts, right, um, of glyphosate. So that was really cynical because they were, it was all like, oh, we're going to feed the world. We're going to make it a better place. We're going to be more environmental. We're going to improve environmentally. And they didn't, they, they, their first technologies were really kind of problematic. And I think that was a huge misfire. But I also think what's so interesting about that misfiring is, um, I mean, and this is what we see in the tech industry is the, the specter of GMOs still very much haunts food and farming technology. Like they recognize that there was huge mistakes that were made in the in the original rollout of these. But they somehow sometimes kind of don't get what the nature of the opposition was. So, and this is something we've, uh, my team's written and thought about a lot too. And so they say, well, um, they say consumers didn't understand how good these were. And so therefore, what we need to do is educate consumers better. And so when when they have social scientists on their team, it's often like, can you help us deal with the consumers so they'll like this technology? And we might say, we might say, what maybe the consumer, you're not reading what the consumers or the public actually thinks. And you're not getting that. And so there's there's all this other area that's back to the question of what kind of research can people like me do is saying, like, how, like, let's reinterpret what the cause of public complaint is, because a lot of the public was not concerned only with I mean, they weren't concerned with the Franken food as much as the environmental impacts or the privatization of seeds. Or all the or the or how biotech led to more corporate consolidation. Those were kind of the real issues that was read at. Oh, people are scared of genetic engineering, right? Right. So right. I think they're so they misread with the technologies and they misread how the public reacted to it. And so now we're seeing in the tech sector all these ways of trying to get around this this huge fear of the public's reaction. Well, you're right. You're right. And so I guess this gets back to kind of where we go from here, Uh, because we're talking about the technology. We've talked about how it's been misapplied in the past and, uh, and where we've misfired. And I mean, how do what can be done to make sure we keep making progress and we are um, uh, coming up with ideas that help farmers and help consumers and, you know, keep everybody tuned in and we can keep developments being in there. I mean, what are, what are we learning from this and, and what are, how are we going to apply those learnings? I think that's a great question. And I think it's a really different, I think it comes down to a really different approach to technology. And this, this, what I'm going to say is not any, is not coming from me. I mean, there's a whole group of, um, there's whole scholarly communities. They're looking at something like what's called responsible innovation, um, or, or just, or reflecting on their own experiences as social science researchers attached to STEM 
STEM fields, which I've been in one project and it was not pleasant, right? So, but I do think it's a very different approach to technology, which starts with what, it starts with not like, here's something I can do. Let me figure, here's a, something I figured out I can do. Where can I go find a problem and then go tell people this is good, their problem and, and make them use it. It starts with what would be really helpful here? What kind of, you know, what kind of technology would be helpful? Talking with actual users, having people who are not STEM researchers, who are not the innovators, they're saying, okay, helpful to whom, under what conditions, um, what are the downsides here? Is this is this a necessary technology? Will it help? It, you know, asking those kind of ethical and political economic questions, you know, will it be proprietary? If so, who's going to pay for it? Like asking those questions while things are under development, rather than after the fact saying, help us sell this to the public because they don't understand they don't get the science and they're scared of the science, you know? So it's a very different approach to technology that brings in um, bioethicists and social scientists and humanists from the get-go to help think and work through what, what would be useful. Yeah. Well, how do you get yourself in that position to make yeah. those things happen? Yeah. You know, I get back to keep thinking about, about government roles. Yeah. Because somebody has to be able to rent the conference center and uh, make sure that they've brought in the flip charts and, and you know, to be able to get the groups together and so forth. And it usually has to be almost by definition nonprofits. So it, whether the nonprofits are an, uh, associations or whether they're state government or federal government, it's hard to imagine that companies that are trying to, you know, um, improve the bottom line for their stockholders, which is understandable, uh, are given the latitude to be the sponsors of this of this broader role. And even if they were, people would be suspicious. Yeah, yeah. Except for they they should pony up too, because if their technologies are rejected because they misread the public, that's a problem for them as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, um, and, you know, nonprofits, you know, God knows they're having to chase their own dollars. But I agree there needs to be very different institutional structures to even have that these kind of conversations. I mean, to be honest, a lot of government grants now do ask for social scientists to be involved precisely because of this. Um, and, you know, I'm in this kind of uh, broader collectivity of social scientists who are thinking about technology and food and agriculture. And we've had conversations. We're actually writing a piece on mm -hmm. our experiences, trying to have that kind of influence I just described. It's not been, it's not gone well. It's not gone well because um, the STEM researchers have the money, they have the social power and they are, um, they think that they have the answers and they see us as being a thorn in their side rather than valuable resources to help them think about how their technologies could be more welcome and used and beneficial. So it's a very it's a it's a really difficult conversation. Um, and I've had a little experience with that. I know other people have had a lot of experiences with it and it hasn't gone well. Um, and I, I do think. I mean, we wrote, we actually, the piece is still being reviewed, but we wrote this piece geared towards STEM researchers and government funders to say, 
Like you really need to rethink this model if you want our input to be valuable in the way you're imagining it to be valuable. You know, you're at a campus that has yeah. a is really a good example of both sides because you had one of the first organic farms in the nation. And in fact, you've got the organic gardens and farms there at UC Santa Cruz really trace themselves back to Steiner in Germany and uh, and and some of the original work on biodynamics and, and certain certainly agroecology. And on the other hand, you also got people that were principals in discovering the human genome and defining you know, you know what we have in all our DNA, and they were the first ones to really do it. And so, on this hill overlooking Santa Cruz, up in the up in the trees in the mountains, I'm wondering, a social scientist like you, did you have to use a different cafeteria or something? Were you guys able to <laughs> to hang out because you had the you had the most extreme, very very scientific that uh, well, view, and then you get the social scientist. You just happened to hit on something that's very interesting. You, you walked into this. I don't think you know this, but one of the things that's happening on at UCSC campus is there's a new ag tech initiative that's really coming out of the engineering department. Um, none of whom, I mean, we don't. We're not a land grant. We're not one of the land grant colleges at Santa Cruz, right? The, the farm and all that came from other sources, right? Uh, we're going to add but, you though. What you're going to get added, I think, sooner or later. You'll oh, get maybe, in. Yeah. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But I mean, we don't have an agronomics department. We don't have agricultural engineering, but there's interest in um, the engineering department to develop ag tech. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's still under discussion. And I probably shouldn't go too far with this other than to say that the university is very interested in this as, an, as a new avenue and sees it as kind of a marriage of UCSC's various strengths in engineering in the farm and supposedly with us social sciences, but we've had a hell of a time having a discussion um, on, on, on like at a starting discussion. When we we actually had a symposium last year where we tried to start this discussion, and a lot, a lot of the social scientists are not happy with this initiative, and a lot of the agricologists aren't either because they don't see ag tech is particularly compatible with what happens on the farm. And yes, there may be some technologies like a soil sensor for nitrogen that they'd be like, okay, that could be useful, but we haven't even been able to have a serious conversation about where that ag tech initiative can and should go. Even though we've had, we wrote a report on it, um, me and one of my grad students, I mean, we, we've tried to have a conversation. We can't even do it at our own university. So it's, well, it's a real challenge. You, you, you took me in a direction I wasn't expecting. Oh, no, no. You know what? I'm glad I did because some of our <laughs> listeners here are saying, where the hell is he going with this? But, <laughs> but I actually think what we're identifying is, uh, is a hopeful frontier. Uh, when you get down to it, I mean, some of this is just basic communications. And who does that better than social scientists? And and I think that it's not necessarily that you have to have, you know, millions of dollars of funding of this and that and a government program and so forth. But getting people with these different perspectives together, talking it through, finding the middle ground and and recognizing, respecting those the synergies that come from that. And uh, and so I'm just glad to hear you got that conundrum in front of you, because I think it sounds like it's the right conundrum. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a really important conundrum. Um, and I think, you know, as 
as you know, we start as the world starts to take seriously using agriculture, I mean, using technology and food and agriculture in a way that's different, presumably an improvement upon its past. Um, these conversations need to be had um, because we know agricultural technological introductions in the past have had devastating social environmental effects. Yep. And which is to say all technology does that because, of course, that's obviously not case because even any kind of composting is some sort of technology. But the big ones have had disastrous consequences. And for, um, for you know, for, for everybody to be jumping in on ag and food tech as a savior of the food system without having those serious conversations is, uh, to me, a real deep concern. I think there's a lot to learn from. And I want to see us learning from the past, not replicating the past. Well, and we're going to, hopefully we do learn from the past and we won't necessarily remake all the same mistakes that we've done before. And in moving ahead, as we kind of wrap up this conversation with, again, Dr. Julie Guthman, if people want to say they can't wait for your book, your next book coming out on this, yeah. but if, if people want to follow this, I mean, ever from a uh, a budding scientist that may be deciding what they're going to major in all the way to somebody that's large scale farmer, smaller farmer, so forth, how do they get themselves in the loop? How can they get their mind into following this a little bit more and maybe having some, some influence? Do you have any suggestions? Well, I will say that my project has a website. It's called the UC After Project. That's A-F-T-E-R for um, Agriculture Food Technology Research. So we that we came up with that acronym. We're very proud of it. Um, so you can they, they can find that on the web and they can see some of the work we are doing, UC After Project. You can Google it and you'll find it. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot, there's there's a lot of scholarship out there right now on this topic coming from social scientists. A lot of Unlike our project, a lot of the scholarship is focusing on particular technologies, whether it's alternative proteins or, or um, digitals or um, controlled environment agriculture. I mean, so there's a lot of scholarship out there, and it's not hard to find through Google Scholar. Um, and if you look at some of our publications, you'll find what's out there. Um, and I think, um, you know, I, I do think there's – I can't think of any off the top of my head. I, no, I know of a couple – initiatives that are trying to look at the social consequences of tech. I think there's one at Stanford. I'm not remembering the name, mm -hmm. um, but the, there's, it's out there. It's not hard to find if you're interested in it or, 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 the, or people are welcome to contact me personally, which and I mean, I'm very easy to find. So, that you're, to find. <laughs> so what do you do? You just go uh, Julie Guthman at uh, UC Santa Cruz yeah, and my find email you? email is jguthman at ucseedu. But if you Google me on the web, you'll find far too many hits. Well, oh no, 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 no! That's it. It's it just means you're popular. It means that you're hitting something that people care about. So that there's going to be people that want to read the book when it gets out, read your reports, yeah. And, and I think recognize that we're onto something. We probably touched on things that uh, seemed a little foggy to some people as we were yeah. the, today's conversation. I really appreciate it. I think it's an I think it's an important conversation, and I want to thank you for having that conversation with me today on Farm to Table Talk. It was, it's been really a pleasure to be on the table. I loved our discussion. So thank you very much.
You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 